Welcome to Good Medicine Explained. I'm your host, Dr. James R. Brown. This is episode two of season two for the week of January 31st, 2021. It's truly my privilege to continue providing my old and new listeners with more personalized podcast programs intended to educate and stimulate interest in understanding how our bodies operate and how many of us can cultivate a lifestyle and wellness model that promotes optimum physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. As I've stated before, the medical profession has been looked upon and utilized to extend natural physical life. However, I believe a higher virtue in the healing profession in the 21st century is to transform and improve the quality of life that we are able to extend. When the COVID-19 infection broke out in the United States one year ago, many people initially focused on one particular symptom as a leading indicator of illness, fever. However, we've become more and more familiar with how this virus behaves and affects us, and we have found a new appreciation for what fever actually tells us about what's happening within our bodies. This episode is focused on fever, its pathogenesis, causes, and treatments. Normally, body temperature will vary through the course of a 24-hour cycle, which we call a circadian rhythm. Our body temperature is typically lower in the morning hours and higher in the late afternoon and evening hours. It's possible for an individual child, man, or woman's body temperature to vary by one degree or more every day, and that's still considered to be normal. The normal human temperature is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, and normal can vary by as much as 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. A low-grade fever in the medical profession ranges around 99 to 100.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, fever is defined by the medical profession as a temperature of 38 degrees Celsius, which is about 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. Now, how do you measure a temperature? There are peripheral and central methods. The peripheral method of measuring a temperature may include a tympanic or ear measurement, a temporal artery on the side of your temple, or an axillary, which is your armpit, or an oral thermometer. These are all considered peripheral methods, and they're not as accurate as what we call the central methods, which would actually include a thermometer in the pulmonary artery through a catheter, or urinary bladder temperatures, or an esophagus or rectal temperature. These central methods, however, are less practical than the peripheral methods. 
rectal temperatures are generally 0.6 degrees Celsius, which is about 1 degree Fahrenheit higher than oral readings. And oral readings are probably lower because of mouth breathing. Tympanic membrane, which is the ear temperature readings, are actually closer to core temperatures. And that's what we typically try to use in the office. Now, fevers are also identified by their duration. An acute fever is any fever that lasts less than seven days. A subacute fever can last anywhere up to 14 days. And a chronic fever is any fever that persists or lasts over 14 days. Fevers that persist or last for several weeks are commonly known as fevers of unknown origin. Now it's very important to recognize that a fever is a symptom. It is not an illness. Illnesses can actually be provoked from several causes, but we tend to think of pyrogen as a term to describe any substance that causes a fever. Endogenous pyrogens are those that belong to biologically active proteins our body produces called cytokines. Not all cytokines produce fever, and so we make a distinction by calling the fever-inducing cytokines pyrogenic cytokines. Now, there's the other group called the exogenous pyrogens, which are derived from outside of our body. And these are mainly microbes or other products that produce toxins. The classic example of an exogenous pyrogen is the polysaccharide endotoxin produced by gram-negative bacteria. Toxins are potent substances not only as pyrogens or fever inducers, but also as inducers of various pathologic changes observed in gram-negative infections. Now there's other bacteria such as Staphylococcus aureus, which are classified medically as gram-positive organisms, and they produce an endotoxin associated with conditions such as toxic shock syndrome. However you may think of an infection, a fever is a healthy response from our body to an infection. Now, aside from infections, there are other causes that could cause a fever, including malignancies or tumors, or some inflammatory conditions, such as rheumatic or autoimmune disorders. There are certain medications, such as antibiotics or other drugs, that can be used to treat conditions such as hypertension or seizures, and they've been known to cause fevers. Also, if a person has been uh, abusing alcohol or amphetamines and they withdraw, they can commonly get fevers associated with their withdrawal syndrome. 
And of course, some of you probably have developed fevers after receiving a vaccination or immunization, such as the tetanus or the pneumococcal vaccine. Another way or reason why a person can have a fever could be something such as overexposure to the sun or sunlight or some high ambient temperatures that would cause a heat stroke. One significant distinction about heat strokes is that if you give a person a Tylenol or ibuprofen, their temperature is not going to go down with that medication. When it comes to the COVID infection and the elderly, uh, this group of individuals is said to be at greatest risk for severe disease because the elderly are less likely able to mount a significant febrile response and may be overlooked as having an infection. The human body is normally able to maintain a fairly steady temperature regardless of the temperatures outside because of the hypothalamic thermoregulatory center which is in the brain and it balances excess heat production derived from our metabolic activity in muscles and the liver with the heat that's dissipated from our skin and lungs. For most fevers, when the core body temperature is raised by 1 or 2 degrees Celsius, a biologic response of vasodilatation is initiated. The temperature setting in the hypothalamic thermoregulatory center shifts upward during a fever from 37 to 39 degrees Celsius. And when the hypothalamus senses that you're too hot, it sends signals to your sweat glands to help you perspire and deposit moisture on the skin surface and dissipate your heat. Uh, when the hypothalamus senses that you're too cold, it sends signals to your muscles that makes you shiver and create warmth. And this is what we call homeostasis. There's also an interaction with thyroid hormone, which helps regulate our metabolism and body temperature. During a fever, the set point in the hypothalamus shifts upward from the normal temperature setting, similar to the way a home thermostat is reset to higher levels in order to raise the ambient temperature in a room. Elevated levels of prostaglandin E2 are released from endothelial cells of our hypothalamus, and that appears to be the trigger for raising our set point. Once the hypothalamic set point has been raised, this activates neurons in a vasomotor center to commence the vasoconstriction and stimulate warm sensing neurons to slow their firing rate and increase heat production in the periphery. At the same time, thermogenesis, the generation of heat, 
from brown fat stores in the body contributes to increasing the core temperature. This is known as a non-shivering thermogenesis. Thermogenesis in either fat or muscle takes place by uncoupling proteins that release ATP, uh, which is adenosine triphosphate, and heat. And this combination of heat conservation and thermogenesis accounts for the majority of fevers. There's also heat production uh, that increases fevers from the liver. It's well established that women in their luteal or post-ovulatory phase of a menstrual cycle have higher body temperatures than most days of the month. Hypothyroidism is another cause linked to uh, temperature changes and cancer that also induces higher body metabolism and temperature stores. Higher temperatures are also recorded with increased body mass indexes or being heavy. And any higher temperature is generally associated with increased risk for mortality. In some rare uh, patients, the hypothalamic set point is elevated artificially due to a local trauma or hemorrhage or a tumor or some other intrinsic malfunction. And this condition is known as hypothalamic fever. Hypothalamic fever is sometimes used to describe elevated temperatures caused by abnormal hypothalamic function. However, the majority of patients with hypothalamic damage have hypothermia and not hyperthermia. It's also important to make a distinction between what we call fever and hyperthermia. Hyperthermia can be rapidly fatal and its treatment differs from that of a fever. Despite physiologic and behavioral controls of body temperature, excessive heat production can easily occur. For example, over-insulating yourself with clothing can result in elevated core temperatures, and hyperthermia is most often observed in persons who work or exercise in hot environments and produce heat faster than the peripheral mechanisms are available to dissipate it. Dehydration also contributes to hyperthermia. In the field of surgery and anesthesia, hyperthermia can occur due to a rapid uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation in susceptible individuals who receive certain anesthetics. This is also known as malignant hyperthermia, and it's often nearly fatal uh, and results with patients who take certain neuroleptic drugs uh, that can produce a neuroleptic malignant syndrome. There's another medical disorder uh, from people who are taking serotonin reuptake inhibitors or antidepressants that suppress or elevate the serotonin release. 
serotonin syndrome is a condition where a combination of drugs may have the net effect increasing serotonin in the neurosynapse. Uh, in this instance, too much serotonin either from a combination of medications or uh, too high a dose of a serotonergic drug can induce a fever. Hyperpyrexia is the term used for an extraordinarily really high fever, greater than 106 degrees, which can be observed in patients with severe infections. This occurs in patients with central nervous system hemorrhages, although antipyretics can reduce body temperatures, and hyperpyrexic fever cooling blankets and cool water sponging can be therapeutic. Uh, however, uh, if you're doing these cooling measures but you're not using antipyretics like ibuprofen or uh, acetaminophen or aspirin, then you may not be able to prevent the natural reactive vasoconstriction that occurs from cooling the surface of your body and you can worsen the condition. Other metabolic disorders such as hyperthyroidism can result in uh, mild elevations in the core body temperature and medications such as uh, atropine can interfere with thermal regulation by blocking our normal vasodilatation uh, process causing a uh, rapid rise in the core body temperature. So enough about the science of the fever. Let's talk about breaking a fever. When the hypothalamic set point is being reset down, processes of heat loss are accelerated through the vasodilatation process and the perspiration or sweating mechanism. Resetting the set point downward is usually due to either a reduction in the concentration of the pyrogens or the use of antipyretics. So aspirin, ibuprofen, acetaminophen are classic antipyretics and when taking them it helps to reduce your body temperature. Behavioral changes are also triggered at this time and a person will likely remove their insulating clothing or bedding and this new additional loss of heat by sweating and vasodilatation will continue until the temperature of the blood supply going into the hypothalamus matches the new lower setting. The physical exam can assist the clinician in some forms of hyperthermia. For example, the skin is hot but dry. As I mentioned earlier, uh, heat stroke syndromes will happen and a person will not respond to an antipyretic like ibuprofen or Tylenol. And the safest and best instance of treatment in that situation is to begin cooling measures. So what are some of the signs of a fever? Well, you might witness a 
person is shivering or they're sweating. They may have a low or poor appetite. They may be dehydrated and have a pasty saliva. They're not going to have a lot of energy and they're probably going to be tired. They may have difficulty concentrating. Some complications of a high or persistent fever can include convulsions or seizures, which we're always concerned about with children, a loss of consciousness, severe headache or confusion, a stiff neck, or trouble breathing. In the case of toxic shock syndrome or Rocky Mountain spotted fever, you're going to see a rash as well as the fever. In the case of a person with an infection like a urinary tract infection, there may be urine that smells bad or uh, there may be uh, discoloration. Now, the ways to diagnose a fever would include asking about other illness symptoms such as coughing or diarrhea or vomiting, abdominal pain, or any discomfort when urinating. We also like to look to see if there's any recent history of surgery or injuries. We ask about recent vaccinations. We like to know about any new drugs that they may be taking. And we like to ask about any recent travel outside of the general region or country. Now moving on to treatments, Obviously, getting into a cool environment uh, is helpful. Uh, so undressing the patient or reducing some of their blankets or clothing would be of some benefit. You want to focus on hydration because with high temperatures, uh, your body is actually losing more fluid than you imagine. It's literally evaporating off of your skin surface. So it's important to get frequent sips of water and other fluids. Caffeine would not be a good choice as it can increase your voiding of urine and actually worsen your dehydrated state. So stick to herbal or non-caffeinated teas, ice pops, soups, or flavored gelatins. Also, it's important to try to get some rest as a lot of energy is being expended in the process of trying to keep your body cool. It may be helpful to uh, get a tepid temperature sponge bath or a bath so as to help lower your body temperature. Over-the-counter fever reducers, which uh, are called antipyretics, are absolutely of some benefit. Acetaminophen is the best choice for children between six weeks to six months of age and the dosage is based on the child's weight. Ibuprofen should not be given to children younger than six months of age. And aspirin should not be given to children or teenagers as it may contribute to the condition called Rye syndrome. Some people will alternate doses of acetaminophen and ibuprofen to keep a fever under control. 
And you may be able to safely alternate medications, but there's no scientific evidence to support this approach. It's also very helpful if you're dealing with an illness to wash your hands frequently to avoid disseminating germs into your eyes, nose, or mouth. Again, drinking plenty of fluids will not only help keep your body cool and prevent dehydration, but it will dilute the infection. You want to try to eat uh, light foods that are easy to digest so you're not shunting too much of your blood supply to the GI tract. And taking an antipyrogen such as ibuprofen, naproxen, acetaminophen, or aspirin will have some benefit as well. It's not recommended to rub yourself down with alcohol or get into an ice bath or double up on any of your medications. Uh, this is particularly worrisome as many of the over-the-counter medications already include acetaminophen in them. And if you're combining a variety of over-the-counter medications, you may actually be consuming more acetaminophen than you thought. So the take-home messages from this discussion include, number one, there can be several causes for a fever aside from an infection. Number two, our body temperature is primarily regulated by the hypothalamus. Number three, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like aspirin, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, they reduce fevers by neutralizing the endogenous pyrogens called cytokines. Number four, antivirals, antibiotics, reduce fevers by removing exogenous pyrogens. And lastly, number five, the context, duration of time, associated symptoms, medications that are ongoing can all affect the true cause of a fever. If this particular topic or any of the previous episodes have provoked questions for you, be reassured that I do regular Q&As on my Instagram account at jrbrownmd, where you may submit your questions there through direct message. However, I emphasize that I do not serve as a replacement or substitute for your own personal physicians nor do I provide individualized consultations outside of my practice. As I regularly do, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my podcast team, Lauren and Natalie, who are really responsible for making this podcast possible. The COVID-19 vaccines are slowly getting administered. Please don't let up on your guard. Continue to wear your mask, use social distancing, and always keep everyone around you safe from your germs. Until our next opportunity, may you be happy, 
May you be healthy, may you be loved, and may you have a peaceful heart.